evening, everyone. It's a great new song. Uh, thanks to Sarah for leading us tonight. It's been a few weeks now since our last installment uh, in this series, and so I, I kind of wanted to press refresh for a moment, just to recall where we've been and explain the, the idea behind Rhythm and Rules for anybody who's new or is uh, visiting Windsor this evening. What we've been looking at together is, is the value and the importance of, of not only having, but also using a personal rule of life. Recently, I uh, don't know if David's here, David Armstrong drew my attention to this little booklet here, uh, written by Harold Miller, Finding a Personal Rule of Life. Many of you will know that Harold is the Bishop of uh, Down and Connor, uh, and has been for a, a number of years. And I was actually at a 24-hour conference with Harold about a month ago. And so I got talking to him about this little booklet and about this whole idea of a rule of life. And he was telling me that he, that he first wrote it back in 1984, although it was reprinted again in, in 2012. And he wrote it whenever he was tutor at St. John's College in Nottingham, where he identified a problem whenever he was speaking to the students of that college about personal spirituality. So let me read you a quote from the, the opening chapter of this little booklet. The problem was that very few people knew where to start when talking about their spiritual lives, and the concept of setting goals for spiritual growth appeared to be very new. And the thing which helped me to enable them to begin to explore in a fresh way was the age-old idea of rule, which had lain dormant in my life for at least 15 years. And so those conversations and this kind of problem he identified prompted him to write this little booklet. And it is really good, very practical. And if anybody would like a copy of this. If you would see me afterwards, I can arrange to get one for you. It'll cost you three ninety-five, like. But if you do want one, if you speak to me afterwards, I'll I'll get you one. But I mean, for example, there's a great, uh, you know, personal rule of life, an example of one, a concrete at the back of it. So, uh, please do speak to me afterwards with that. And incidentally, Harold is coming to speak at Windsor uh, in June as part of our Up In and Out series. So. A personal rule of life. What's, what's it all about? Well, it's about facilitating and encouraging spiritual growth. That's really what it's about. It's about spiritual formation. It's about those disciplines, those holy habits, and how they, along with a number of other aspects of life and practices, need to kind of be built into our daily and weekly routines or patterns. And as we've been thinking about this We've used the idea and the image of a trellis to help us to gain a better understanding of a rule. The word rule actually comes from the Greek word that means trellis. And a trellis is a support structure. It's a support system that enables a vine or a plant to grow upwards and to bear fruit. And so, for example, for a grapevine to produce good grapes, 
it must have a kind of trellis structure in order to support it and underpin it and guide it in its growth. Otherwise, it'll just slump to the ground. And so like a trellis, a rule of life, which is an ancient spiritual practice that's been about for centuries, usually associated with St. Benedict, but it's been used by many Christians down through the years. But like a trellis, a rule of life supports and guides our spiritual growth. That's its intention. That's its purpose. It enables us to cultivate greater fruit production. It kind of facilitates, if you like, the guarding of our hearts. It reminds us to be intentional about daily discipleship. It helps us to nurture our sometimes forgotten souls. Here's the uh, trellis we have been using as a visual during this series, which, which captures nine practices and areas of life that can be or maybe should be written into our personal rule of life. And, and let me put this out here again and be clear. One of the main aims of this series is to encourage each of us to actually put pen to paper and to formulate and write down a personal rule of life that we then use and develop over, over time. At the bottom of this trellis are the kind of three core practices and disciplines that absolutely need to be part and parcel of every Christian's life. Prayer, sacred reading, a constant engagement with God's word, and then the practice of Sabbath, the need to rest so that we work, as we said, from a place of rest rather than the way we've got this all skewed where we kind of rest from work the way God ordained it, knit it into the fabric of creation is that we work from a place of rest. And then if we move up a level, we come to family and friends and the vital part that they play in our lives as companions on this journey. Soulmates, blood relations. And three weeks ago, Gordon looked at the importance of friends and family and how we relate to them and how we need to make sure that, that things are in place to ensure that we, we do spend time with those people who are incredibly important to us, that we invest in our relationship, that we share life together, because it is friends and family that often sharpen us and hone us, stretch us, challenge us, care and support us. But if we're not careful and intentional, sometimes you lose touch. Lose touch with those who at one stage were maybe really important to you, who walked this journey with you, but for whatever reason, by not being intentional, we become isolated. Tonight, we move to another level on the trellis, and we come to the body, and to play, and to money, and how we need to pay attention to these potentially restorative practices and aspects of our lives. And next Sunday night, we're gonna look at money, but for the rest of our time together this evening, I wanna look at the body, your body, these bodies of ours, and play, which hopefully could be interesting. I'm not sure when the last time was you heard a talk in this context on bodies and play. But we're gonna take them in turn 
uh, although they're obviously closely connected. Now, I do need to say, I mean, these are actually quite massive issues, and, and we're only going to scratch the surface and probably going to raise more questions than, than answers. But I, I do hope we'll kind of engage with these two key areas, key areas of our lives. So to start with, we do need to look after ourselves physically. Self-care. Do you know, these bodies of ours are a gift. I know what some of you are thinking. <laughs> but as David writes in Psalm 139, God knit us together in our mother's womb. And we should praise God because we are fearfully and wonderfully constructed, made, created. But one of the problems, and, and there are a few, particularly within our image-conscious, dominated, saturated culture, whenever the pressure to conform to a certain body image and look and shape and style it whenever that pressure is intense, what happens is that people can become obsessed and preoccupied with their bodies to a totally unhealthy level and therefore go to dangerous places in, in a couple of different directions. So one, some people abuse their bodies through poor choices and habits and behaviors and lifestyles. Or they veer towards another extreme and become obsessed with things like working out and physical exercise and dieting. And they take that to a completely whole other, unwise, unhelpful level. Where, for example, just one thing, vanity becomes the motivating factor and attitude. And depending on where you take this, you kind of get to then the rather interesting decision that seems to be becoming increasingly popular where people choose to go under the knife and have cosmetic surgery. Now, as I say, I, I fully accept, and I was preparing for this, I realized that, that even when you, you raise some of these issues and scratch a little, there's danger. this is such a complex subject, and so please don't give me too hard a time afterwards on it. But as one writer says, and, and here's really what I want us to grasp tonight, the care of our bodies through regular exercise, adequate sleep, and healthy eating constitutes a foundational part of our rule, rule of life, our trellis that supports our life with God. The body, mind, and spirit are interconnected. This means that physical practices are also spiritual practices. Now, we don't, or at least I hope we don't, and shouldn't buy into the ancient Greek dualistic mindset that did have a profound impact on Christian thinking at one stage, which believed that while the soul was good, the body was and is evil, and therefore it didn't matter what you did with it or to it. Now, of course, our bodies, just like our minds and spirits, have been infected by the sin virus. And therefore, our bodies have the capacity for evil. But as I said, our bodies are also a gift from God, and so they have the potential for good, and they're worthy of respect, and they're worthy of care. 
And it's also worth remembering that God took on flesh and blood. God took on a human body and became one of us. According to Paul, writing to the Christians in Corinth, he said, honor God with your bodies. Now, I know that he was specifically speaking into the issue of sexual practice and sexual sin, but the point he makes surely has a wider application. Let me read you his full quote. We know it. Don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and that your body was given to you by God? You don't belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. And there's definitely a a kind of double take on these verses because what they communicate and tell us is at one level is that, that God greatly honors our bodies. God has chosen to dwell within them by his Holy Spirit. Your body is a temple. But these verses also urge us to honor God. God honors our bodies, but this verse tells us we should honor God with our bodies and what we do with them and to them and how we use them and care for them and make sure we don't abuse them. And I mentioned a moment ago as, as part of the previous quotation the importance of three things. Sleep, which some of you are probably thinking I'm about to do right now. Sleep, food, and exercise. And so I just want to say something on each of those very briefly, because in caring for our bodies and, and kind of writing this into a personal rule of life, I think we need, to, we need to think about these three areas. So, gift of sleep. And I say gift because some people see getting sufficient sleep as a liability. In the rule of St. Benedict, he emphasized the need for, for the monks who were part of that order to get enough sleep. Why? because he believed that that would ensure two things. They were more present to God and more available to others. I think that's great wisdom. More present to God, more available to others. But the question is always this, how much is enough? Isn't it? You're all smiling. <laughs> and for most of us, the answer to that question is more than we're getting at present. And the fact is, it varies from person to person, but who can tell me what typically, what, is, what are we told the typical person needs in terms of sleep per night? Seven to eight hours. And if we are sleep deprived, we are less alert and we're often more irritable. I was reading this week that Dr. William Demont, the founder and former director, we get this, of Stanford University's Sleep Research Center, contends that sleep, more than any other factor, including diet and exercise and hereditary, sleep predicts longevity and health. Adequate sleep. Sleep refreshes and restores the body. So does napping for some people. We're, we're all wired differently. And again, some of you are going, I'm just going to take a bit of time to nap right now. But Winston Churchill famously promoted the value of daily restorative naps. 
Here's what he said. I love this. You must sleep sometime between lunch and dinner and no halfway measures. What do you hear this? Take off your clothes and get into bed. That's what I always do. Don't think you'll be doing less work because you sleep during the day. That's a foolish notion held by people who have no imagination. Remember, Churchill said that's not me, right? You will accomplish more, he said. You will get two days in one. Well, at least one and a half, I'm sure. When the war started, I had to sleep during the day because that was the only way I could cope with my responsibilities. For, so for some of you, napping is the way forward in the, in the line of Winston Churchill. We all need a healthy sleep pattern. Are you, are you getting that? And if not, why not? Secondly, eat well. Our eating matters. Now, right up front, and again, need to be clear on this, because in Matthew 6, Jesus said, listen, don't be too come too preoccupied by what you eat and drink. But eating sensibly is important, although the problem we have is that what is actually good for you or not seems to be under constant review and revision. So one week a report will come out confirming, well, too much of this is really bad for you, and then another month or two passes, and another report comes out saying, no, actually, we need more of that. And so it can be incredibly confusing to say the least. But whatever way we look at it, health, a healthy, balanced diet is important for caring for our bodies. And the scripture teaches God has created food for our enjoyment as well as our nourishment. It's not a sin to enjoy food. The real sin is to embrace the unrealistic, unattainable standard of beauty that's perpetuated by the advertising industry when it comes to some of these issues. But eating well is so important. And then finally, exercise. The apostle Paul writing to his young protege, Timothy, Timothy said this, listen, physical training is of some value. But godliness has value for all things. Paul obviously wants Timothy to grow in godliness, but his point is not to downplay or rubbish the necessity for physical exercise. He simply wants in this young guy's life to keep things in proper perspective. Look after yourself, Timothy, but remember, godliness has greater value. Don't neglect your physical well-being, Timothy. And we shouldn't. And as I say, I know I'm only scratching the surface and more could be said, but self-care is important. For those of you who were here the time I fed back after my sabbatical, one of the books that made a kind of profound or impact on me during my sabbatical was a book called Resilient Ministry. And it kind of identified after eight years of listening to various ministers uh, talking about ministry, identified five areas that were absolutely key if they were going to survive and thrive in ministry. And one of those areas, the second area, was self-care. Because it was recognized that lots of these ministers were just neglecting to look after themselves for whatever reason. And so we do have this, this tension within our society that really goes way over the top in this area. But also, we also have the tension of a society that is not looking after itself. And we do need to look after ourselves, I believe, as Christians and attend to this and write it into our 
rule of life. So, remember Romans 12, present your bodies as living sacrifices, which is pleasing to God, spiritual act of worship. And so let's give thanks to God for the rejuvenating gift of sleep, the nourishment of good food and drink, and the delight, although maybe that's pushing it too far, of invigorating exercise. Honor God with your bodies. Write it into your rule of life. What are you going to do? If you want to ask me afterwards what I've written into my rule of life when it comes to these areas, you can talk to me afterwards. And then we come to play. Now, if you were here five years ago, you might recall some of this, what I'm going to share. Play is sometimes called recreation. Why? Because it's, the capa- it's got the capacity to recreate us. And I love that thought. But a restorative rule of life or trellis that supports our life with God needs to include and certainly should include times of play and leisure. Honestly, should. Because after all, according to Old Testament wisdom, there is a time to dance. It's time for lots of things, but there's also a time to dance, play. Play, if you like, is about stopping to waste time, which is maybe a phrase that jars with some of you. For a moment, I want you to think back to when you were a kid. Realize that might be harder for some than others. But do you remember when you used to just play? Like for hours on end. You sometimes spent whole days simply playing and creating and exploring and making and having fun. Do you remember fun? My wife says that to me quite often these days. I love the bit in Zechariah, sorry, Glenn. I love the bit in Zechariah where the Lord promises Israel that when he returns to bless Jerusalem, a sign of that blessing will be that streets would be filled with boys and girls playing. I love that picture in Zechariah. It's going to be a sign of thy blessing. Streets filled, it says, with boys and girls playing. When when I was growing up, we lived opposite playing fields. And, And I can remember leaving the house in the morning with a ball under my arm and heading across to, there were two gravel hockey pitches and a couple of football pitches. And I didn't come home until it was getting dark, other than to eat. And all I did when I think about it was just played. But surely as you get older, it all changes. Well, it has to, doesn't it? One of the first things to die in some, maybe most adults, is playfulness. I know some of us are still just big kids at heart, and I'm not going to look in any direction. But the majority of adults, it seems, reach a place where they feel that life is all work and no play. Or, and, and this, is, this is the other common mindset, we, we still play as we grow up, but there's got to be a point to it. 
Isn't that true? So we play with our kids to entertain them or to get them out from under our feet. We play because we want to lose weight. We play because we want to cut our handicap. We play because we want to spend time with others. And that's okay, at least we're playing. But whenever we feel that there's got to be a benefit to it, a purpose in it, then maybe, just maybe, it ceases to be play. We need to see play as an end in itself. Play is doing something for its own sake. Although it's worth making the point that according to certain scientific research, play not only refreshes our bodies, but actually renews our minds. But part of the problem with play in and of itself is that it's it somehow, and maybe we're here, it somehow feels irresponsible now that we've grown up. Surely life is too short and far too serious to play, and, and so we justify it, and so there's got to be a reason to play otherwise. I'm bound to feel guilty if I do it. But do you know something I honestly believe? There's some things we just need to do for the sake of doing them. Not because... There is some usefulness attached to them, but simply because they make us feel more alive, more ourselves, more free, and that's use enough. Now, Christians, and I, I mentioned this recently, Christians are sometimes known as fun deficient. We're sometimes, we're sometimes stereotyped, certainly in the media, as being uptight and repressed. And therefore, maybe we need to relax a bit and discover or rediscover a theology of play question, is there such a thing as a theology of play? Quite a few years ago, a guy called Robert Johnson wrote a book called The Christian at Play, which is a thorough exploration of, of this issue. And according to him, the evidence for play in the Bible is extensive. Yet we have, for the most part, failed to recognize it or act upon it. As Christians, we have failed to let Scripture speak authoritatively to us about the need to play. So let's play. Because all work and no play makes most of us, never mind Jack, rather dull. C.S. Lewis talks about play being, this is the way he refers to it, play is the Christian's opportunity. And the incident in, in his classic Narnia tale, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, is brilliant on this. Just after Susan and Lucy ha have witnessed the tragic death of Aslan, and then they witness his resurrection, and I referred to this five years ago. Those of you who've read it, what is the first thing that Aslan does after he comes back to life with the kids? He plays with them. Oh, children, said the lion, I feel my strength coming back to me. Oh, children, catch me if you can. He stood for his second, his eyes very bright, his limbs quivering, lashing himself with his tail. Then he made a leap high over their heads and he landed on the other side of the table. Laughing, though she didn't know why, Lucy scrambled over to reach him. Aslan leaped again. A mad chase began. Round and round the hilltop he led them, now hopelessly out of their reach. Now letting them almost catch his tail, now diving between them, now tossing them in the air with his huge and beautifully velvety paws and catching them again and now stopping unexpectedly. So so that all three of them rolled over together in a happy laughing heap of fur and arms and legs. And whether it was more like playing with a thunderstorm or playing with a kitten, Lucy could never make up her mind. 
And the funny thing was that when all three of them finally lay together, panting in the sun, the girls no longer felt the least tired or hungry or thirsty. Do you know, I love that. Because isn't it true that when you play, the real world gets left behind for a bit? You forget your tiredness and your hunger and your busyness and all that list of things you've got to do. And it is only for a bit, yes. Play's not about running away from the real world. It's not about mindless escapism. But it is about recognizing that when we play, the concerns of every day come to a standstill, if even for a moment in the mind of a player. That's not a bad thing. G. K. Chesterton, key Christian writer and thinker who died in 1936, often referred to as the apostle of common sense, said this, I for one have never left off playing and I wish there were more time to play. I wish we did not have to fritter away on frivolous things like lectures and literature. <laughs> the time we might have given to serious, solid and constructive work like cutting out cardboard figures and pasting tinsel upon them. It's brilliant. Now, I know he's exaggerating to make a point, but I do reckon we need to play a little bit more, and so let's write it into our rule of life. Write it in. Let's go kick a ball against the wall. Get out the monopoly. Go fly a kite. Throw a stick for your dog. Dance. Even paste, okay, maybe not dance. Even paste a few figures onto a sheet. Because at the end of the day, play is best when it's kept simple. I said at the start of the series, I, I realize that we're kind of dealing with big thematic issues in this, not so much expounding passages of scripture, although I hope it's all based on scriptural content. And I know I've only covered uh, or scratched the surface on both of these issues, but in our support structure, for spiritual growth and fruitfulness. Let, let's build into this trellis a commitment to care for our bodies, to honor God with our bodies. What are we gonna do? And let's intentionally make time or rather stop to waste time to just play. 